Welcome to the latest episode of The Grower and the Economist. I'm Michelle Klieger, The Economist. And I'm Peter Conjoyan, The Grower. Each week, we team up to tackle the biggest challenges facing small and medium-sized growers. We're one part grower and one part economist, just like your business. So with that, would you like to hear my rules on how a grower can integrate a new crop or a new cultivar into his or her operation? I would. Now, it's not going to be a surprise, but uh, Peter has three a three-year rule to kind of match up with my um, three rules of crop scheduling. So I'm, I'm one of those students that, that was taught that you try to do things in threes when, when we're teaching and conveying information. Uh, and it wasn't hard. It wasn't a force to, to put these uh, thoughts into a three-year program. So let's say that uh, a grower attended last year's aquaponics workshop that you and I were at at UNH. And part of that program was discussing lettuce cultivars uh, that the uh, fish waste was being used uh, as, as fertilizer. And you might come away from that workshop and say, gee, I want to use uh, that particular lettuce cultivar or I want to incorporate a growing lettuce in a, a hydroponic raft system. So how do I go about do it, doing it? And the rule or schedule that I've come up with is three-year rule where rule year one, a grower is taking someone else's recommendation, someone else's schedule, and trying to plug it into his or her operation. So if uh, we've used radish as a recurring uh, subject or, or um, a test crop because it's so simple, if we continue and use that for this discussion, it might be a new cultivar of radish, or it might be a new shape of radish instead of the traditional globe shape. Maybe it's more of the elongated um, carrot-shaped radish, and you might want to incorporate it into your mix. Several episodes ago, you and I talked about incorporating high-protein crops into one's operation to try and offer some protein where our meat system and supply chain is being disrupted. So it might be somebody trying to incorporate kale or Brussels sprouts into the program. And if you've never grown this crop before, or you've grown the crop, but you haven't grown this new cultivar before, the first year you're sort of flying blind. You're, you're relying on someone else's recommendations. And with you and and me having contacts in the academic community, if we look at the country from coast to coast, you might be taking on a new crop that was researched by a, uh, a horticulture uh, researcher in a faraway place. If we're in New England, it might have been a colleague uh, of ours at the University of Colorado or the University of Florida developing the program. And we know you and I have discussed differences in climate, differences in environmental conditions. Um, you've made a great point that in a, an indoor vertical farm environment, we have more control over the humidity and the temperature and light. 
So all those things considered, we're taking somebody else's rules and recommendations. And the first year, we're, we're kind of, you know, holding, holding on and, and hoping that we're doing things right. And at the end, in my opinion, if we can at least break even on that crop, uh, I think that's considered a success. I'm, I'm not necessarily banking on that first year being profitable. If it is, I think that's a bonus. So now I want to stop and give you opportunity to jump in at, at any point here. So that's that's year one. Take somebody else's uh, advice and try and implement it. Do you have any comments that you'd like to make before I keep going? I guess I'm, I'm thinking about it a lot like baking, right? The first time you make something, you're likely to follow the recipe pretty closely um, because somebody, you know, has written this down and said it's the right way to do it. I'm wondering, though, how important is it to follow it specifically? Like if you've grown a lot of radishes before and you, you say, well, it says X and you know what, this system... In the past, I've really always found why. Um, so like with baking, right? I, you know, it says to make, to add a stick of butter. And I really think that that tends to be too much. So I'm going to cut it down a little. So how important is it to follow the recipe exactly or the directions exactly versus still building in some of your experience during that first year? I love that comment. And that analogy is perfect, Michelle. On the, on the baking. So let, let me try and answer it this way. Um, if, if we're talking about a crop that you are growing and it's simply a new cultivar, that certainly might be a slightly different discussion. And perhaps for today's conversation, I should focus more on a new crop altogether, given your input there. And and you know, on, on my side, Michelle, I, I am a passionate home brewer of beer. And what you're describing about the butter, um, I'm presently experiencing in my brewing because as I get older, I find that I don't want as much alcohol in a recipe. So I'm tweaking recipes to bring down the alcohol content so I can enjoy a couple of beers and, and not be wobbly on my feet. So the analogy of, of the baking and the butter and, and all of that uh, yes, it's perfect. How closely do I need to follow the recipe for this new crop? So, so let's let's divide right now and and say that I'll continue the conversation and we will res I'll, I'll focus more on the new crop because that recipe is one that I believe we do have to follow more closely. So your point is excellent. If it's a new cultivar of a crop, I can I can. Uh, meander and go off road from here from time to time on on that recipe to to get it to market. Um, yeah, great point. So let me give you an opportunity to to make a final comment, and we'll move to year two. Nope, that works for me. I have to admit, I am not the best baker because I'm the one that wants to tweak everything, um, and I'm not the best at following directions. So oh, I think it comes from that personal. Well, I don't. You know, I just want to. So that helps. And Michelle, you're, you're uh, skipping ahead a couple of beats to when we uh, finish up the new crop uh, strategies. I, I I'd like to, we want to talk about how growers should conduct on-site trials. And uh, the, we're going to return to your comment, 
uh, about straying too much in a few minutes. So that's a, that's a great point. Let's move on to year two. And if we experience sufficient success after this first year, where we are able to bring a new crop into the operation and produce it successfully enough that we get it to market, to harvest. And let's say that we're able to break even. We didn't um, you know, blow the bank on, on the cost of this new crop being exorbitant. Let's, let's say everything worked out satisfactorily. Year two, in my opinion, is that tweaking of the recipe exactly as you stated a, a few seconds ago. So after that first experience, and again, using the example that it might have come uh, from a university system or a plant breeder or a seed distributor with experience in a different region of the country than you, than you operate in, then just getting it to market, I think, is a success. And then year two is when you're going to tweak it. You're going to adjust it as, as a grower. Uh, is it the schedule that needs to be adjusted? Is it some of the cultural practices, the nutrition? If it's in a greenhouse, uh, oh, I'd like to try a different night temperature. Or if it's an indoor environment, um, gee, that light was a little too high in terms of intensity. My daily light integral could be a little bit lower. So that's the year. It's year two that you're now imposing your expertise, your experience on your environment. So in, the, in year two, as you tweak this recipe so that the, if we use your analogy, the muffins are going to come out uh, you know, closer to your taste, this is where there's pressure and there needs to be a profitable cycle after year two so that you can make a decision. All right, I've worked out the bugs in the system. I now understand how to grow this crop am I able to grow it profitably? Because in the end, as you and I discuss in a recurring theme, if, if we're not making enough profit, if there's not enough money in our pocket at the end of the cycle, why are we doing this? So let, let, uh, let me pause there and let you jump in and then we move on to year three. I assume that the tweaks that we're making here have to go back to the rules we discussed in the beginning about adjusting um, you know, start dates and end dates one week versus two and those pieces, but also just maybe anything that needs to be changed. And how do you prevent yourself from making too many changes in year two? Now you're, you're jumping ahead again to the on-site trial thing. That, and, and, and that's excellent comments that you're making. You, we, we need to be careful not to change so many things that if something goes wrong, we're not able to look back and put a finger on which change caused it. So it's important and a great point that you're bringing up. We need to be as um, steady as we can. So if we go back to year one, perhaps for a grower in New England, recommendations from California just didn't cut it at all. And it Never mind breaking even, it might have been a disaster. So at that point, um, there's a lot that has to change, or what, what we're balancing is, is one of those uh, 
imaginary scales in front of you and you have the, the list on both sides, right? The pros and the cons. And if the schedule and that outside recommendation was just so off for your region, or if you were a little sloppy and didn't pay attention to the details, um, your point is well taken. We need to understand after that first crop cycle and make a decision. Well, was it my sloppiness or was it a, uh, a different region of the country recommendation coming into me? So it's very challenging to be able to look back and understand, make, draw conclusions on what happened. So I'm, I'm not specifically answering your question here at this moment. We're going to get to it in 10, 10 minutes, but you, you raise a good point. So, so make a final, um, um, talk, you know, make another comment on that and, and let me make sure that I, I'm trying to address you. No, I, I think we're good. Let's move on to step three before I get us way off track. May have stated in, in the past, Michelle, that at conferences, many of us believe that more education takes place outside of the classroom and in the aisles of the conference. So I think some of uh, these these comments that you're making are taking place uh, off road for this topic, but uh, they are so appropriate, and uh, we need to just make sure we knock them all off the list and, and talk about them. So year three. I'm going to use the sports analogy here. Uh, once a team achieves a championship, and I'm going to say that after year two, if we grow that crop, make our tweaks, achieve profitability, it's understood in the sporting world that as difficult as it is to become champion, it's doubly difficult to repeat a championship. So in my opinion, year three is taking the success, the adjustments that you made in year two, and assuming that they were successful and you achieved profitability. Year three is, and it sounds simpler than it is to execute, Michelle, it's simply stay the course, repeat the success so that it's ingrained in the operation. So repeat the successful adjustments. And I often find that growers can easily become distracted, lose their focus, relax, and say, oh, I've nailed that crop. I, I got that crop. I know how to grow it. So I'm going to put it on cruise control. And you and I have talked often about profitability I think we've laid a, a very solid foundation about shrinkage and crop loss. And, and my, my view of it as a silent assassin. And we want to make sure that in year three, we don't slide backward. Because if we give away any of our profitability in year three, and we go back to year one and say, okay, we broke even, or we might have had a slight loss. I have a different view. There's a different view of, of profitability, and that's not within each season, but it's among the seasons that we string together. And I want to stop there and get your economic input there, um, because at some point, we need to generate enough profitability in year two, three, or beyond 
to be able to look back and say, okay, year one, we had a loss, but it was learning experience and taken as a whole, these three years have been a, a profitable and, and a successful venture. So let, let me give you that chance to jump in on the profitability and the economics. Well, I would be remiss if I did not take the opportunity um, to mention and follow through with your sports analogy that as a Washington Nationals fan and waiting a lot of years to win, um, finally winning the championship in 2019, I don't know if it counts as a repeat, but it's looking less and less likely that there's going to be baseball. So, you know, they get to be the champions for two years at this rate. Um <laughs> Obviously not the way anybody wants to do it. And I think that that's a great point is that, you know, once you find that magic recipe that works, being able to really ingrain it in your system and, you know, using the same crops and using the same, you know, methodology and, and all of these pieces, because it's easy to want to keep tweaking um, and to overcorrect and to, you know, get too confident. So I really like the three steps. I like the way that you're first, you know, focusing on not losing your shirt, then you're focusing on staying prof being profitable. And then really the goal is you are a commercial operation and this has succeeded in its, you know, initial test and is now part of you're offering and should, you know, provide enough profit to keep the business going. Um, I have a feeling based on the outline for today that I'm going to jump ahead again, but I'm just going to use it as, you know, moderators prerogative to steer the conversation. So when you're talking about, you know, the profitability and learning and trying new things, I, I understand that in and of itself, these are the goals for each step, but I assume that you're trying them on a small scale so that it should have a minimal impact on your bottom line, especially that first and second year when you're still figuring things out. That's such a good point. And I'm, I'm grateful you bring it up. Absolutely. We talked in earlier episodes, Michelle, about growing long or selling out. We talked about speculative growing. So we've handled that both from my perspective as a grower and researcher and yours as an economist. So it, it's so appropriate that you bring that into this conversation to wrap it up. That first year where we're relying on someone else's recipe or recommendations, you don't go planting acres and acres in the field or filling half of your greenhouse production. Please don't do that. Um, certainly if it's not a new crop and we bounce back to maybe it's a new cultivar, you can be a little more aggressive. But yes, if we're saying that breaking even on year one is the goal, then why would we want to tie up so much of our production space just to break even? So perfect, perfect comment from, from the economist's perspective there. And then as we go from year one to year two, depending on the level of success, we could become a little more aggressive, right? Does that make sense? Once we've tried it and we've at least broken even, then we can be a little more aggressive in year two. And if year two 
succeeds in um, presenting a profitable picture, then we can ramp up again. But chances are, as you and I are talking about diversifying one's product mix, chances are we're not talking about shifting a significant portion of production space to this new crop, not as early as year two. I would say after year three, if we are able to repeat success and establish profitability, at that point, perhaps going to year four, we could take a bigger jump. But then I want to temper the whole conversation and raise the question that we might segue into when, when you feel we're done with this topic. And that question is, Michelle, one that I've asked over and over through my career, how long can we ride a new crop or a new cultivar profitably? So, so that in itself brings a whole dimension into the conversation that kind of addresses what you're saying. So I think what surprised, what surprised me in that same conversation that we had uh, in your greenhouse many months ago at this point is that there, that you mentioned that there are varieties that you have used for a long time and will continue to use. So I think that the profitability or the role of a certain cultivar in your site in on your farm really is dependent on what's working for you. I mean, you've talked about how people are more comfortable with certain crops. Um, it might be that your clients are more interested or your customers are more interested in something. So, I mean, from my perspective, I wouldn't, I wouldn't throw away a variety. I wouldn't make something obsolete on your farm just because something new and shiny has come out. Like if you have a power horse that continues to be profitable and be a staple in your operation year in and year out, I mean, almost like that good dot matrix printer, like something that is good and sturdy and keeps working I wouldn't replace it. That doesn't mean that I don't think you should continue to try new things, but I don't think that your goal necessarily needs to be to find the new thing if what you have is working. Um, and so as much as I you know, think that plant breeders are always coming out with new and interesting and wonderful things and trying to make you know the experience better for the farmer and for the consumer and potentially the supply chain, don't fix what's broken. Or sorry, that's backwards. Don't fix what's not broken. Well, well said. And I think many episodes now, I had cited uh, one of our leading cultivars of butternut squash as uh, named Waltham Butternut. And it was bred 20 miles from me in Waltham, Massachusetts at the UMass Experiment Station. That was back in the 60s or early 70s, and it remains a uh, foundational cultivar of, of butternut squash. So you make, make a very good point. To, to illustrate the, the point that I'm bringing up, Michelle, let me fall back on ornamental crops for a moment, just, just to illustrate and, and then we move on. In terms of how long can we ride a new cultivar or crop in an ornamental greenhouse, again, either geraniums, petunias, poinsettias, whatever, 
the time frame, the opportunity for us in ornamentals can be much shorter or is much shorter than in some of the edible crops and the point that you're raising. Because in ornamental crops, due to shifts in color trends, and we've been taught as ornamental plant growers to pay strict attention to magazines, uh, home, home improvement magazines, and to watch the colors and shades of colors that are being advertised and shown in issues because millions of dollars have been spent by marketing firms to decide or to understand what color tones and trends are coming. So if it's a color of petunia and uh, it's a shade of pink that may be in vogue this year and next, but then we know that the trends are going to be created so that colors shift and we create new opportunities to sell things that are different colors, then there's a lot of pressure on an ornamental crop grower. And my rule is that we, it may be as short as three years to be able to ride a cultivar before it changes or goes out of, of favor. So if you match up three years of an opportunity to the three-year rule to produce the new cultivar or crop, you can see where in part they align, but more importantly, the three-year trend rule applies so much pressure to shifting from year one breaking even to year two being profitable to year three ma maintaining profitability. And then if there's a year four or a year five, uh, that's, that's the gravy, um, that's the icing on the cake. But then folding in our discussions about the importance of shrinkage and, and losing money and dumping crops, if that shade of pink goes out of style and I don't sell out of it, then that shrinkage and loss in year three or four or beyond that loss, in my opinion, gets thrown back on the entire three or four year cycle where we're going to look back at some point and say, wow, we were wildly profitable in year two and three with this new crop. But if we look at the entire three or four year program that we had it in production and we, we look at uh, the, the comprehensive loss or profitability, we might be left scratching our head and saying, why did we even do that? We were too aggressive. We shouldn't have grown so much in year three and four. So that uh, instead, if we grew less and sold out, we would look back and say, wow, that was a profitable venture. How do you feel about that? I think that looking at the whole life cycle makes a lot of sense, because especially if it's this short-term um, rollout, because... Because I mean, it just makes sense, right? That it, it's going to be an average. That you're going to have we if if you know that you're going to have this year that's not super profitable, then you're going to have some good years. I I think that it it's not you know you might look at your your farm or your operation as profitable or not in any given year, but I think when you're assessing new varieties, it does make sense to look at a couple years to see where it made sense if it made sense to grow it and i think that if you decide that look when you're growing ornamentals and 
you get to year four or five and the average is you didn't break even or the average is that you didn't you know, maintain that profitability or you could have done something more profitable, I think that's worth considering if those really good years are not high enough to propel the entire production um, in into the black or into the black consistently. And then I think that you just have to think, does that ornamental fit somewhere else in your operation, right? If you look at the five-year average and it's okay, it's not great, it's definitely not you know, going to be a huge part of your business, then what else is it? Is it, you know, that you have these bright colors, these super in colors, and you get people into your garden center and therefore they're willing to shop more? Is it, you know, looks great in advertisements because, you know, so it attracts people like where do these ornamental fit in your operation if it's not on a pure profit or loss? So are are you saying as as our economic expert in, in a discussion like this, Michelle, are you saying that from my perspective as a grower, that looking at the the profitability over time, over the years, are you putting a stamp of approval on that perspective? Is is there a basis in your uh economics? that says, yes, growers do look at that year to year and the cumulative profitability. Yes. I mean, so I do think that it's almost like different stages of a company, right? So you're, if you're a startup or, you know, a new company, you're not really going to expect to really have everything running and moving correctly and taking advantage of the trend, right? The trend is building. It might be a new product. It might be a new idea. It's going to be slower. It's going to require some investment, right? It's almost like this new division or this new company. And then once you mature and you've got some efficiencies and you've got some learning and you've got some market awareness, you would want a higher return on the investment because it's almost like you had that year, the first year was investment and the second year is recuperating that investment. Um, and we know that industries mature and move on, especially in you know colors, which makes me think of fashion and how quickly things turn over. Um, but you know, were those good years enough that it makes sense that you know you have this tail in the beginning that you have to climb? So I, I do think it makes sense. I think that it's almost like you're starting a new business. Um, and my guess is on, on these colors and ornamentals that if you looked at fashion, you would see a lot of similarities. I mean, right now there those companies are really struggling with if they didn't sell their inventory this year, if clothing companies didn't sell their inventory this year, do they hold it until next year because they're not going to have the sales or do they just write it off as a loss? And so I, I do think that this is a valid way to consider um, looking at your operation. I just think that it's also probably just part of it. And most businesses either have you know, that flashy thing to get people in, like I said, or they have a loss leader or they have the thing you have to do, right? If you have a, you know, CSA box, do you have to have basil each week because people are expecting it? So it might not make you a ton of money, but like that is the expectation until you can ex get rid of that. 
it has to be part of it. And so you have to see where that fits in. And if it's part of a multi-year strategy, then I think it should be assessed based on multi-year profitability. I so enjoy our discussions that are not, um, we, we don't rehearse them ahead of time, but to have them organically unfold the way they do, Michelle, this, this is now twice in this uh, conversation, this episode where you've brought in a real life analogy that's just so, so per perceptive the banking analogy earlier, and then the startup company analogy, those are perfect. And I, and I, I truly believe that, that we're finding different ways of describing principles that allow any of our listeners to be able to relate to what we're saying. I'm going to make a final point on the new crops, Michelle, and it, it kind of bleeds into a topic that I look forward to discussing with you in future episodes, and that's cost accounting and a profitability analysis. And, and I know those are dry topics, but I, I'm so eager to learn from you and hear from you about that side of um, business management, farm management. So here's something that, that I've shared and how I operated with new crops that has actually raised eyebrows among my fellow growers, particularly those who are larger in size, uh, their operations than I am. So oftentimes in ornamental crops, we're dealing with asexually propagated crops so that we are buying in a rooted cutting instead of a seed to germinate or a seedling. And it's fairly expensive to purchase rooted cuttings. It's also expensive to ship them and to, to compound the challenge for a small grower, um, and, and I think we could probably draw the analogy that a vegetable grower, there's uh, increasing demand and um, increasing uh, popularity in grafted tomatoes and grafted vine crops. Watermelons, seedless Water watermelons. Thank you. And, and oftentimes, now that traces back and connects to points you made earlier about breeding in terms of uh, grafting a, a cultivar onto a disease-resistant rootstock, right? So, so some of that is um, disease management uh, focus? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So um, as a small grower, we're often challenged when bringing in a new crop uh, we've established we don't want to grow too many of them because we don't know what we're doing yet. So in, in my world of ornamentals, a plug tray, a 10-20 tray, which measures you know, roughly 10 inches by 20 inches, and uh, minimum number of cells or plants, let's say, would be 100 or could be upwards of two or 300 in a 10-20 footprint. That would be the minimum. So if I need to bring in, let's say, a, a 100 cell tray of a new cultivar petunia, and let's say that most of the packaging is, accommodates three or four trays, but I only want one, and I'm going to pay dearly in freight to get that one tray of petunias into my operation so that I can go through year one and use somebody else's schedule to see if that's going to fit my, my production um, uh, operation, my operation. 
So my conclusion, or the way I handled the the shipping of that single tray, is if if I apply it to the profit analysis of those 100 plants, it in itself, the shipping, the freight, can be a profit killer. So in order for me to um, feel comfortable bringing in these minimum quantities of new plants, I decided to assign that shipping cost to my overhead cost so that it would take a little pressure off of that first year and allow me to get a clearer picture of what that crop can do in my operation. Now, large growers, and, and I've presented this at conferences during my scheduling presentations, and I have good friends who are large growers, one who is a top 100 grower, the 50th you know, largest greenhouse operation in the United States, and uh, we're, we're good friends. And he said, Peter, I don't understand how you can do that or justify that. And, and my response was to him, Bill, you're so much bigger than I am. You, you've got the economy of scale. But if, if I go and apply that shipping cost to that, that crop, I might have to conclude that it's not profitable and not even go to year two. So, Michelle, what, do you, what can you say on, on that? So to clarify, in year two, you don't have to have it shipped again? No, you do. But oh. as, as, as I uh, ramp up and grow more in year two, instead of asking the supplier to ship one tray in this box or carton that might handle three, you know, he, he or she would put the one tray of rooted cuttings in and then three dummy trays just to fill the volume of the box, the space in the box, or, or just packaging in there. But I'm still paying that big box. Am I making myself clear? So in year two, I'm probably asking for the three or four trays that fill that box, and it's a more efficient shipping cost. Yeah, um, no, I, I get that. And so then the next year, the 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 shipping cost per plant would be, if it's three or four trays, a third to a quarter, right? And so that's what you're basing it on? So I'm, I'm saying that, okay, in, every, in each year, and this ties in uh, your, your comments over our episodes of plant breeders, and just because it's new doesn't mean we need to use it, but we want to stay fresh and we want to each year bring in some new genetics. So let's say that uh, in, in, we're not just talking about one tray of petunias. Um, I might decide um, for next year that I want to try a new cultivar of petunia, a new cultivar of geranium, a new cultivar of patients. So, so I've got this, this collection, and they're all coming from different um, suppliers so that I still need to pay that, um, that freight, you know, the, the phrase, you know, just paying through the nose to get that tray on site. So every year there's going to be this, this shipping cost of these half dozen crops or new cultivars that, that I'm, uh, I'm absorbing that cost. So for me, it made sense to say, just don't worry about it, put it in overhead, let it be spread out over the entire operation so that you can get a better picture of of each of each tray and its and their their performance. I might be beating a dead horse, Michelle, but I just wanted your expertise as an economist to say, uh, Peter, it's really inappropriate for you to do that, or 
I understand what you're doing. And here's one of, this is one of the challenges that small growers have, and that's getting new genetics into their operation. I think it's an interesting problem. I think that I sort of have found a middle solution that I am more comfortable with. Um, and so what I would do if I was making the budget is I would include the cost of shipping at scale in my first year, right? So I'm trying to make a decision in my first year. Can I get profitable? So if the shipping had cost me, if it was going to be a dollar a plant, um, but because I didn't get enough plants, it was $4. If I was trying to decide if year two would be profitable, I would want to include the shipping in. So if the shipping was a dollar, because that's the scale I think I can get to, at that point, is it profitable? Because I do think that it's almost like a capital investment, right? You are investing in something to try it out. You know, it's your R&D cost, which does make sense as overhead. Um, but if you're trying to figure out what will be profitable in the future, you need some version of the shipping cost. So to say there's no shipping, I think underestimates your, um, your cost profile. But I think that, you know, putting in this inflated cost for the trial would make the bar too heavy to succeed, which I think was your point. That's why I enjoy working with you, partner. This 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 kind of conversation is exactly what fellow growers need, and us teaming up together, I think, is a uh, a no brainer. I I hadn't thought of it that way, and I learned something this morning, as I do every time I have a discussion with you. 